The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. It's time to open the scriptures together, and we are returning this morning to the book of Colossians. It's been several weeks, but we're coming back to the book of Colossians there in the New Testament, so turn with me. It's on page 984 of a blue Bible in the rack if you need one, or other page numbers there if you've got a large print Bible or some of the other scripture copies. But do turn with me to the book of Colossians as we remember that the book of Colossians is Paul's letter to a relatively small, relatively new church of Christian believers who are learning to find their way in walking and following Jesus amidst the pressures and realities that face them in the world in which they lived in the first century. And one of the things that I hope that we've been finding as we've gone through this book together, that God's Word is timeless truth in such a way that regardless of the circumstances or era in which we find ourselves, these words are still wonderfully relevant to us as we in the 21st century make our way in following Jesus amidst the pressures that are about us as we want to be faithful followers and disciples of Jesus Christ. So the words are just as relevant to us uh, now in this age as they were when Paul originally wrote them under divine inspiration. Well, today what we want to see is the benefits of what Jesus has done for us. Just by way of a, a quick summary to orient you in the text, because we're looking at just a, a few verses here in chapter 2, what Paul has been doing in the book of Colossians so far is that he has been lifting up and exalting the person and work of Jesus Christ, such to say to the Colossian believers, this is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus has done. This is what is so significant about the confession of Christ as Lord and King and Sovereign Ruler over all things, the preeminent one. We saw that through chapters 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. At chapter 2, verse 6, there's a very important pivot point when Paul goes on to say, because that is true, because of who Jesus is and because of what He has done, this is what is true for you who claim the name of Jesus by way of a confession of faith to say, Jesus is Lord. So that you who confess Jesus as Lord, here is a word of application in Colossians 2.6. Paul says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. And the rest of the book of Colossians is an application of what it means to walk in Christ. What it means to live a life of believing in Jesus and following Jesus and trusting Jesus and embracing the reign of Jesus for our lives as our King and we His servants. To walk in Christ is to be, in other words, a Christian believer, a living Christian believer. So, Paul has been saying this is what this means, this is what this looks like, and he's continuing to apply the work of Christ to us. This morning as we come, especially to verses 13 and following, uh, 13 to 15, Paul really gets to uh, some of the most wonderful points of application for what it means for you and I to have a Savior, for what it means to possess faith in a living Savior and the benefits that are ours because of who Jesus is. So that's what we're seeing this morning. So let's pray and ask God's blessing upon His Word. Gracious God, we look to You now as both the author of life and the author of spiritual life. You give life to us, Lord. We don't give it to ourselves. 
And by that life that you have given to us, you also give your divine wisdom. That we are not those who are left to stumble through life unaware of reality and truth, but you have given to us all things necessary for life and godliness in the Scriptures. And so, Father, as we open them now, we pray that your Holy Spirit would descend upon us with illumination to give understanding, conviction, and heartfelt trust in your word today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And now hear the word of God, Colossians 2, at verse 13 through verse 15. This is the word of God. And you who were dead in the trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of God abides forever. Keep your Bible open there in Colossians 2 as we hear the benefits, the benefits of Christ. So, what Paul is doing again is he is saying, who is Jesus, what has He done, and what does it mean for us? Uh, oftentimes people will say, you know, you, when, you, when you preach, you usually do like three points. There's usually three points, and that's usually true. It's true today, but I have a friend who only ever preaches two points. And some of you say you need to be more like your friend. Well, his two points are always the same every single time. The first point is what is true, and the second point is what to do. What is true and what to do? Well, Paul, I think, is doing that throughout the entirety of the book of Colossians to say, here's what is true about Christ and here's what it means for you and what you are called to do in response to that. And that really is the structure of what Paul is doing here. But as we ask the question, what is true? I want to ask you if you can think about this. Why is it that Jesus has done what he has done? However much you know about the person and work of Christ, ask yourself the question, why did Jesus do that? Whatever it is you're thinking about. Healing, doing miracles, providing deliverances, living a perfect life, sacrificially offering Himself, being raised, ascended, sitting down at the Father's right hand. The various things that the Savior has done in the history of redemption, why did He do that? Why did He heal? Why did He perform miracles? Why did He do these things? What was the point and purpose of all of that? What I want us to see, that I think Paul is saying here in the book of Colossians, is that anything that you can think of that Jesus has done, He didn't do it for Himself. He did it for you. He did it for us. He did it for those who would trust in Him. Nothing that Jesus does, He does for Himself. Everything that Jesus does, He does for those who who would trust in Him. And that's the first thing that I want us to see this morning. First of all, that we are in union and we are united to Christ and share in the benefits of what He has done. The things that He has done, He has not done for Himself. He has done for those who would trust in Him. We are those who trust in Him. So Paul says this, verse 13. You, 
who were dead in the trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with Him, together with Jesus, together with Christ, to share with Jesus Christ everything that He has done. So, His life, His death, His burial, His resurrection, His ascension is a shared reality for the Christian believer. Paul says that we are made alive together with joined to in union with Jesus Christ. Everything that Jesus did, He did for us who share in the benefit of what He has done. We share in the righteousness that He has won. We share in the perfection. We share in the love. We share in the obedience. We share in the joy. We share in the rejoicing. We share in everything that Jesus has done, which is why we call them benefits, because He provides them for us when we trust in Him. He gives us these things. What are the things that we receive? What are the benefits? What do we have in union as we are together with the Savior? Paul says, you are together with Christ. And what is true? He says, well, first of all, you were once dead. You see that there in verse 13? He says, you, you were dead. Just the past tense of that. There was a time when you were not alive. And when he's talking about that, he's not talking about your physical life. He's talking about spiritual life. He says, if you are a Christian believer, there was once a time when you were not alive spiritually, you were actually dead. And you were dead in spiritual sense in these two ways. You were dead in both trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. And what he means by that is you were spiritually dead in the sense that you possessed a record of trespasses, a record of moral guilt, your sin. The Bible says that the unbeliever is dead in their sin, dead in their trespasses, to use the words from Colossians 2.13, their moral guilt. But they are also dead in, to use Paul's words, the uncircumcision of your flesh, which is a reference to spiritual guilt and alienation. That the unbeliever is dead both by their moral guilt and by their spiritual alienation from God. They don't have a relationship with God. They're alienated from Him. The reference to uncircumcision is a callback to the Old Testament when those who were not circumcised were cast out and because they were seen as unclean. They were not of the people of God. And Paul draws on that to say that the unbeliever is dead in trespasses and in their spiritual alienation. But by way of Jesus Christ, verse 13, you who were dead, you who were dead in trespasses, and you were dead in the uncircumcision of your flesh, verse 13, God says, made alive together with Christ. That the Christian believer is now alive, of course, in a physical sense, but they are alive in a more deeply true spiritual sense. That the unbeliever is dead in trespasses, but the Christian believer is made alive spiritually in the freedom of forgiveness. The unbeliever is dead in their spiritual alienation from God, but the Christian believer is made alive in their union and, and return of fellowship with God. The Christian believer is alive in the resurrected Savior. That's why it's so important that we celebrate the joys of Easter and the resurrection, that because Jesus is alive, everybody who trusts in Him 
shares his resurrection life and everything about his resurrection life becomes true of us. Forgiveness and righteousness, obedience and holiness and moral perfection before the throne of God. That is true of us because we are in Christ, united to Christ and share his benefits. That's what Paul is saying here. Jesus didn't do his saving work because he needed to. He wasn't a sinner. He did it because I am a sinner and I am in need and everything Jesus has done, he has done for me and everything that is true of him is shared by me, his benefits. If you're a Christian believer, you're alive in Christ. You are alive in Christ. That's what he's saying. And what else is true of you because of Jesus? Two additional things, wonderful things. Secondly, because we are united to Christ and sharing all of his benefits, we are forgiven. I hope you came to church today wanting to hear the word of the gospel saying to you that in Jesus Christ you are forgiven. Well, that's exactly what Paul is saying here. That we who were once dead in unforgiveness have now, in verse 13, been made alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. All of our trespasses. And then still in verse 14, by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Now, I have a suspicion here about early childhood education, and I'm no professional on these things, but every single one of us was raised with this horrendous notion of the, quote, permanent record. Remember that? Now, all you educators in the room, if I need to be corrected about this, you can tell me afterwards, but I am suspicious that there is not such a threatening folder, or in my case, a box when I was a kid, uh, that follows you classroom to classroom, administrator's office to principal's office, down through elementary school, into junior high school, on into high school. I always wondered, what does the high school professor or what does the high school principal give to my college? Do they give it to them? I didn't know that, right? By the time I was old enough to know, it's really just a, a veiled threat, isn't it? But let's be serious about this for a moment. Though there exists no such permanent record of your earthly academic experience, God keeps a permanent record. And what Paul has said here is that we who were once dead in trespasses and sins, we were guilty. And there was a record to prove it. Now what Paul is making reference here is the fact that God in His righteous omnipotence and His righteous omnipotence and, and omniscience knows all things and is all-sufficient powerful to keep a record of all of our sin. That is true. And you know what? You know it's true. Everybody knows that that's true. We are very tenderly self-conscious of this reality that there is a record of all of our wrongs. That there is a permanent record of our spiritual guilt. We are guilty both of sins of commission, things that we have done, things that we have said, things that we have thought, things that we have intended in our hearts that 
if there were to be a projection of my life and all of my sins set on display for all of you to see, I would run away from here never to show my face ever again. And so would you. Because we are guilty in our sins, both of commission and sins of omission, things we have failed to do, righteousness that God requires of us that we don't obey, that we fail to do. There is a record of debt against my life that without a Savior, I must answer for on the day of judgment. Let me say that very clearly to all who hear. There is a record of all of your sin. What will you do? Well, with a Savior, with a Savior, there is an answer for the record of your debt. Paul says, the record of your debt is forgiven. Look again at verse 14. He has canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. The legal demand says, guilty and in debt and transferable by way of death to be punished. This legal demands against us, God the Father has set it aside by nailing it to the cross. It's a very graphic image, but it's a very powerful image. Do you remember that when Jesus was crucified, they placed a sign above him, mockingly saying, the king of the Jews, such to say, this is what he is guilty of and why he is being executed. And there is a record of my debt that includes everything that I've ever done, everything that I have ever transgressed God's law for. And what Paul is saying by way of very graphic imagery is that for the Christian believer, Jesus Christ takes that record of debt, places it in his hand, and then the nail is driven through your debt into his hand, and he bears it. Your sin as a Christian believer is not swept under the rug. It is paid for. It's paid for. God is a good judge. He doesn't simply dismiss offhand. Guilty though I am, I am forgiven, Paul says, in Jesus Christ because Christ has been nailed to the cross and with Him the legal demand of my sin, the record of my debt. Loved one, don't miss the word all at the end of verse 13. All of our trespasses. Such to say, there is always someone who says, that sounds good for my neighbor and that sounds good for my friend, but that can't be true for me because you don't know what I've done. You don't know the things that I'm guilty of. You don't know the things that I have done in private or in secret that God knows but nobody else knows. Paul says that in Jesus Christ, by power of His resurrection, you are made alive and by His resurrection, all of your trespasses are forgiven. Do you know, that's why we celebrate every single week this the call to confession, the confession of our sins, the assurance of pardon, the glory of poetry, because this is the reality for the Christian believer. The reality for the Christian believer is not that we are not sinners, but rather that we confess that we are so that we can be forgiven and celebrate the forgiveness that He's given to us in Jesus Christ. 
People oftentimes have this wrong notions of Christians. That, oh, you guys think you're just a bunch of perfect people. You never do anything wrong. Far from it, actually, because the real Christian believer is the first one who says, no, I'm the sinner. I'm the sinner. That's why I need a Savior. And if you are someone who is tempted to not understand that and you think that Christian faith is just a means to puff yourself up, I would suggest to you that you don't understand the Christian faith at all. The Christian faith and the Christian church is not some sort of celebration of self-righteous people. It is a hospital for the sick, wounded, who realize that their malady is their sin and Jesus is their life. And we must understand that. Paul says, you are made alive in Jesus Christ by the forgiveness that is offered to you, all of your trespasses, every single one. Believe it with all your heart. So we are united to Christ with all of His benefits, and then we are forgiven because of that, but we are also, he says, more than conquerors in Jesus Christ. Verse 15, Paul says, this is what God the Father has done through the triumph of Jesus Christ. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. There's a lot of he's and them's and him's. There's a lot of uh, pronouns in that text, but let's get it very straight. What this is saying is that because we are united to Jesus Christ in His resurrection life, and because we are forgiven by that resurrection life, in that resurrection life by which He sits upon heaven's throne, we share in His victory and His triumph. Or to use the words of Romans 8, you are a conqueror in Jesus Christ. You are more than a conqueror in Jesus Christ. What does this mean? Well, when Paul says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Let me cut straight to the point of what this is talking about. The Bible says that Satan is the God of this world, lowercase g. That he prowls around like a roaring lion looking to devour. And we who were once dead in our sins used to belong to the kingdom of darkness and used to belong to the kingdom of sin where Satan was our Lord. And Paul is saying that through Jesus Christ, by way of His resurrection and ascension and heavenly session, He now rules over that kingdom of darkness in such a way that, Christian believer, this is what happens in your daily life. Satan demands to have you back. He demands to have claim over you. He demands to say, no, this one is still dead in their sins. This one is not alive in Christ. He demands to say that because of this person's continuing sins, they're still mine. But what Paul says is that Jesus Christ has triumphed over that claim. Christ has triumphed over the claim of the evil one in your life in such a way that when Satan demands to have you, Christ says no. Christ says no. This one is mine. Satan, you are a liar. This one is forgiven. And we draw out from this the important imagery, both from the book of Genesis and the book of Revelation, that Jesus Christ is the sovereign ruler of all things who treads upon the head of Satan at the end to crush him. Satan will have no claim over the church because the church is Christ's own bride, which he has purchased and won by his death and resurrection. 
So what that means is that because you have been united to Christ and share in His forgiveness, and because Christ has triumphed and put to open shame the powers of darkness, Satan can and will continue to accuse you. He will continue to say to you, there's no way, there's no way that you could be forgiven. There's no way that you could be loved by God. Knowing what you've done, being who you are, living the life that you've lived, there's no way you. Satan continues to accuse us, but the Christian believer knows that that is not what is most true about them. The Christian believer knows, according to what Paul says here, that that used to be true of us, but not anymore. We are now made alive together with Christ. We share in His life. We're no longer alienated. We're brought into the fellowship of God, and we are forgiven of all of our sins. Christian believer, you are not your sin. You are who you are in Jesus Christ. Your sins are not what your identity is drawn from. You are drawn into the identity of the triumphant, risen, reigning, ascended, ruling Jesus Christ. And nobody else gets to say who you are but Him. The problem is, is that oftentimes the person who is least likely to believe it is yourself. So what do I say from time to time? I say, if I'm the only preacher of the gospel in your life, you've got a problem. Because do you know who needs to preach the gospel in your life most of all? You. Because you wake up in the morning and you say, oh, but I don't know if today God still loves me. I don't know if it could be possibly true that today Jesus is still merciful. And if you only hear the preaching of the gospel on the Lord's Day, it's insufficient for you to live your Christian life. Dear Christian friend, you have to look yourself in the mirror and say, what is most true about me is who I am in Jesus. His opinion of me matters most of all. Because, God love you, if you live your life according to what other people think about you, or if you live your life according to only what you say about yourself, you are going to be a sad, miserable, despondent person who does not have hope. But if you preach the gospel to yourself and say, I am who I am in Jesus Christ. I am united to Him in a resurrection life. I am forgiven. I am a conqueror in Jesus Christ. Loved one, you will rejoice. And you need to. So, we are united to Christ. By our union with Christ, we are forgiven. By our forgiveness, we are a conqueror in Jesus Christ. These things are true. So, what should you do? Well, Look back into verse 6 again when Paul says, Therefore, as you received Him, when Paul says through verses 13, 14, and 15, this description, whoever that is true of, it's true of the person who has received Jesus Christ, and you are called to walk in Him. Or in other words, you're called to live your Christian life. You're called to live in your union with Christ and live into what is true about Jesus. Be who you are. The gospel says to you, and you are not a slave to sin. You are not a victim. You are captive to Christ. You are in Christ. His righteousness and His obedience and His perfection, His forgiveness is all yours. His love and grace and mercy is yours. When Paul says you should walk in the knowledge of the gospel, he is calling you to press on in the Christian life under the banner of the gospel, united to Christ, fully forgiven of all of your sins, and a victory, victorious conqueror in Christ. That's what that means to live as a Christian. You must know that. 
But let me say to you, finally, by way of pleading application, I've been working this past week on a presentation that I have to give at General Assembly on um, evangelistic preaching of the 17th century English Puritans. Giving this presentation to the General Assembly next week in Detroit. And Puritan preaching always involved this sense of not letting anyone who sits under the preaching of the Word walk away being able to say, I didn't know, or I wasn't told, or I didn't hear. So let me say very, very, very clearly that when Paul says in verse 6, therefore as you receive Jesus Christ, if that's not you, if you haven't done that, if the description of you in this text is not alive but death and guilty and under the reign of Satan, it's because you have not done what Paul says in verse 6, to receive Jesus Christ. What does it mean to receive Jesus Christ? It means to submit myself to His Lordship, to acknowledge my sin and confess Him in His resurrection as my Savior and as my hope. And here's my concern. My concern is that it's very possible for you to hear the name of Jesus throughout your life, for you to know many things about Jesus, but never actually know Him. And that is the greatest travesty I could possibly imagine. That someone could be reared within the walls of God's grace and never themselves embrace Christ from the heart with faith and repentance. So we must be assured that it is not enough to feel sorry for our sins. It is not enough to just feel guilt. We must flee to the Savior. The Savior who welcomes you. The Savior who gives you life. The Savior who promises to forgive you all of your sins and make you more than a conqueror in Him. Loved one, that's who you are in Jesus as a Christian believer. And what a wonderful Savior we have. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we rejoice in the truth and power of the Gospel today. We rejoice in the transformative work of Christ, resurrected and ascended. And we pray that Your Holy Spirit, as it descended upon the church, would descend again upon every one of us to further our conviction to more deeply solidify our hope and more safely secure our trust in you, Lord. So bless us, we pray, in Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.